Today's scripture is in Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Thank you, Stefan. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. All right, let's pray, and then we'll begin our conversation. Father God, we are grateful as always for the ability to gather together in this particular place to sing songs, to read your word, to pray, to take communion, and just to be together. And God, this morning, in the midst of a three-day weekend, in the midst of the busyness of life, and in the midst of all the activity that is going on here at this church, we want to celebrate those things, but we also want to pause and be quiet and listen to your voice. And may we be a community that doesn't just do a lot of things or have a lot going on, but a community that is genuinely devoted to you, devoted to one another, and may that love be the driving force behind the things that we do and the ways that we serve. We also pray for Pastor Albert and his family as they travel, keep them safe, and may they find some rest in the midst of a busy week. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want to begin this morning by thinking about an experience that I'm sure a lot of you have had where there's something in the future that you are anticipating. Maybe it's Christmas Day, first day of school, last day of school, wherever you are at in life. Maybe it's an album from your favorite band or a movie that's coming out. There's something that you're really excited about, and it's in the future, and as time goes on, you get closer and closer to that thing. The anticipation is growing. And then that moment comes, and it's Christmas morning. You're opening that gift. You're downloading this album, and you're listening to it for the first time. Whatever that experience is, whatever that moment is, you're finally into it, and you have this feeling of, this is it? I've been waiting all this time for this thing. This is it? Kind of that like, eh, moment, right? For me, there's probably a number of different experiences I could think of, but for some reason, I reflected on my experience of seeing The Matrix for the first time. This is kind of a dated reference now. I understand that. But when that movie came out, I knew nothing about it. I genuinely had no idea what it was about. My friends invited me to go see it, and uh, they sort of dragged me along. We were late, because that's typically how we roll. We were late. It was also a later showing. It was the opening weekend. A lot of people were excited about this movie. It was very crowded. We had to pay full price. I was in college at the time, so that was a bummer. And for the only time in my entire life, I sat in the literal front row of the theater to watch this movie, doing the whole like looking up thing. And if you've seen The Matrix, you know there's a lot going on on the screen, and so you're kind of like <laughs> doing this thing back and forth. And I walked out of that movie with whiplash. But anyway, I'm sitting there in the front row before the thing actually starts, and I'm kind of grumpy about it. Again, we were late. We're sitting in the front row. We paid full price. I'm not super excited to be there. And then the thing started, and I was like, oh, my goodness. This movie is incredible. And we had never seen you know, those kinds of special effects, and the story was cool, and there were all these spiritual themes. And I, I remember leaving that movie going, wow, that's probably going to be in my 
like top five favorite movies. And then a couple years later, they announced that they were coming out with not just one, but two more Matrix films. And they were going to release them at roughly the same time. And so I was really, really excited about getting to see the next installment of this, what had then become a trilogy. And so I camped out and I got tickets to opening night. I actually saw it in IMAX this time. I wasn't going to sit in the front row again. We went and saw it in the city and the movie started. And anyone who has seen the other matrices, matrices, what's the plural of that? <laughs> Knows what I'm talking about. The movie starts and you're kind of like, really? Like, this is it? We had spent years looking forward to this thing. And then our hopes got really high. And we went and we watched it, and our hopes were just dashed. Bitter disappointment at the sequels to The Matrix. But again, whatever that is, whatever that moment is for you, I'm sure you've had this experience, right, where you're really looking forward to something or your expectations have been raised to extremely high levels, and then you get into that thing, that experience, that moment, and they're just sort of dashed, and you're left disappointed. Now, this strangely enough, brings us to this idea of community. The word community is a word that I see just getting tossed around all the time in our culture. It can be used to describe just about anything, from a study group at a community college to a group of people who just happen to live close by. This word community is used all the time. I've even heard it used in a qualitative sense, as in, man, that was some great community we had last night, as if like how we feel about what we're experiencing in the moment defines whether or not we're actually having community together. So it's this word that's become overused and I think has even lost some meaning. But the widespread usage of the word community, I think, communicates and reminds us of a very deep truth, this longing that all of us have to know and be known, to love and be loved, to understand and be understood and yet, I think it also communicates that a lot of us feel a lack, right? Like there's something missing. Even in a city like Oakland, a region like the Bay Area with all kinds of people around us, a lot of us can feel alone. A lot of us can feel lonely. So we have this yearning to be with people, to have a place where we're known and loved and accepted, but there's a tension there because a lot of times that can feel very elusive, and it's not just the broader culture that struggles with this idea of community. I think the church does us a little bit of a disservice as well. I've been around church for a while now and in ministry for a little while now. And it seems like church people are always coming back to this passage in Acts chapter 2. This picture of the first group of Jesus followers. The scene that Stefan read takes place shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection and then his return to the Father in heaven. And so there's this group of people who profess to follow Jesus and they're trying to figure it all out. What does this mean? What do we do now that Jesus is gone? What does it look like to be together? What are we supposed to do in light of all of these things that have happened? They're trying to sort this out. And again, church people love this picture. We come back to this again and again. This Acts 2 community has become a sort of holy grail, Right? If we could just be a church like that, if I could just be a part of a community like that one in Acts, then everything would be great. Everything would be awesome. 
So churches, we create ministries and programs to reach different people you know, in different stages of life. We create things around just about every issue that there is. And we sort of make community the answer to everything, right? If you have this problem or if you need to connect with these people, get plugged into this ministry, go to this program, get more involved in our community. And one of the problems there is that we create, I think, unrealistic expectations for what community is, what it's supposed to be. Make it sound like all you have to do is show up to church or to a church-related event and you will have unlimited friends and joy and laughter until Jesus comes back. But the truth is, the kind of community that we see in Acts chapter 2, it doesn't just happen, right? It doesn't just happen. There's a whole lot more involved in that than just showing up on Sunday morning or somewhere in the middle of the week. Now, I want you to think about this in particular through the lens of home groups, all right? Home groups, we place a high value on those here at Regen, these smaller groups of people meeting in homes around Oakland and in Alameda. And we hope that our home groups are a space for you to connect with other people, to learn about what it means to follow Jesus in this place together, to grow together, to serve one another. In many ways, we hope that our home groups are a place where you can experience this acts to sort of community. But I want you to think about what we're really asking you to do. And some of you maybe have been involved in home group for a really long time. And so the memory of showing up for the first time is pretty far back there. But I want you to kind of put yourself in that place and think about what are we asking you to do when you join a home group? Okay? We're asking you to show up at a stranger's house or maybe somebody you've met only one time, right? Somewhere in Oakland or Alameda. At night, all right, knock on their door and then hang out in their living room for a couple of hours, eat their snacks, and then open up. Just share about your life with people. Share your prayer requests. Share your thoughts on this passage. Share your struggles, right, with a group of people who may or may not be trustworthy. I mean, this is crazy, right? What are we asking you to do when we ask you to show up at a home group? Then there's the reality that if you kind of make it past that initial awkward phase and you stick around for a while, there's the reality that you're going to get to really know people, right? All their weirdness and their quirkiness. You'll see their messy kitchen. You'll get to know their disobedient children. And then here's the really harsh truth. You may not like all the people in your group, and they may not like you, right? So I think we've created this unrealistic expectation that community, especially Christian community, is this sort of utopia where everything is just great all the time. We bring these unrealistic expectations into real relationships with people. We show up and we discover people are people, right? Heather Zempel writes, you can have a tidy church as long as no one is in it, but community requires that we show up, and showing up means bringing our mess, bringing our mess, right? Community can be messy. There is no perfect ideal community because there are no perfect ideal people. So true community is real people sharing their real lives with each other. And when we do that, we bump into each other, right? When we bump into each other, we can bruise each other and that can lead to pain and to wounds. And some of us carry those things with us, right? Community can be exposing, it can be scary. So there's this 
deep desire that we all have to connect, but there's also this fear about reaching out because we don't want to be disappointed again. We don't want to be hurt again. Several years ago, when I was in seminary, this is over 10 years ago now, um, again, a lot of dated references today. I apologize for that. I'll try to be more current next time. <laughs> when I was in seminary, I spent my summers working at Mount Hermon. Anybody here familiar with Mount Hermon over in the Santa Cruz Mountains? Yeah, one of my favorite places in the whole world. And I don't know how they do things now, but back then there were three camps that were running full tilt during the summer. There was a middle school camp, a high school camp, and then there was the conference center. And the conference center was this place where all different kinds of groups were there during the summer. Family camps and specific groups who were able to rent it out for whatever reason. And so what the conference center did is it hired over 100 college students to man all the different programs that they had. And this is actually where I worked the summers that I was there. They hired students to do everything from watch little kids to work at the bookstore, serve food in the dining hall, man the ropes course, all kinds of different things. And they put all of us, all 100 plus of us, in this tiny old dorm building up on what we called the hill. And so for 14 weeks, we were all together in close proximity serving at this camp. And my job was, I was called the lead staff counselor, which basically means that if anything went wrong, people came and complained to me. <laughs> but my job was to serve as sort of an RA and a counselor and a pastor to all of these college students that were there for the summer. And I reported to a guy named Ron, wonderful guy, who ran camps at Mount Hermon for over 40 years. He was my supervisor, and we'd have these weekly check-ins. And during these check-ins, he'd say, hey, you know, you can tell me whatever you want to tell me about what's going on up there on the hill, and we'll just sort of talk about it and sort out some of those things. So for the first couple of weeks, he'd ask me how things were going, and I'd be like, Ron, things are great, man. Teams are bonding. People love each other. Everyone likes their job. It's great. This is awesome. And then about five or six weeks in, like this magical switch just got flipped. And all of a sudden, roommates started to fight. People started to hook up. People blew off work to go to the beach. Pranks happened. And everyone would come to me and complain about what was going on. So then I would have these meetings with Ron. And I'd come and I'd say, Ron, things are not going well. Everything is falling apart. People are mad at each other. People are breaking the rules. All this craziness is happening. What am I supposed to do? Tell me what to do. And Ron would sort of laugh and smile and look at me. And then he would he'd kind of lean in and he'd say, you know, Steve, the kingdom of God is the kingdom of right relationships. I'd go, oh, that's great. That's a great title for a book, Ron, but I don't think you understand. Pranks are happening. People are really mad at each other. Like, stuff is getting broken and stolen. Everyone's complaining to me. What am I supposed to do? Just tell me what to do. And he would smile and look at me, and he'd say, You know, Steve, the kingdom of God is the kingdom of right relationships. And that's pretty much how our meetings would go for the rest of the summer. <laughs> One of those things that was very, very frustrating in the moment, but I look back on it now and I realize that it was a very good gift that Ron was giving me because in community with people, there's always going to be something going on, right? Someone's always going to be mad at somebody. Someone's always going to be late. There's always going to be a mess to clean up somewhere. And what Ron was saying is that we can never let the mess overtake the vision. We can never let the mess overtake the vision, and the vision is this kingdom of right relationships. 
And he was right, because without a vision like that, it's very easy to quit, to walk away, to give up, to be stuck in our disappointment and our disillusionment because our expectations have not been met. The kingdom of right relationships is not just a sort of pie-in-the-sky utopia, but it is worth fighting for. So what we're going to do is next Sunday we'll really dive into this picture of this first church, this early church in Acts chapter 2. But today I want us to focus on just one word. And I think the key word in that text is the word devoted. This people, this group of people was devoted to each other. They were devoted actually to a number of things, but I think they were definitely devoted to one another. The word devoted means having strong love or loyalty for someone or something. And it's interesting that this connection between devotion and love. We just celebrated Valentine's Day yesterday, right? And so again, another word that gets tossed around a lot in our culture is the word love. But the kind of love that is wrapped up in the word devotion is, I think, a lot different than the definition of the word love that we use around Valentine's Day. The kind of devotion that the Acts 2 community had for each other was much more rugged than a Valentine's Day card sort of love. Jesus says in John chapter 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You don't see that on a lot of Valentine's Day cards, right? And of course, this isn't just a nice sentiment. Jesus did this, right? Jesus laid down his life for us. His death on the cross displays the full extent of that love. And the love that Jesus showed for us, his messy, rebellious creation is costly. He gives up everything. Not because he gets something out of it, but simply because that's who he is. Jesus is love. And then what's interesting is Jesus calls us to the same kind of love. In fact, the verse right before that one says this, Love one another as I have loved you. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. Let someone lay down his life for his friends. This is where the rubber really meets the road, right? Community, great to talk about. Great to sit around and talk about, but really loving other people is hard, it's difficult, it's costly, and it's risky. C.S. Lewis is famous for saying, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. And again, this is the great paradox of community. We all want the benefits of being known, the benefits of belonging, but none of the risk that comes with actually loving people. So the truth, even though this is kind of scary, is that we will never experience the kind of community that we crave until we are willing to be hurt, willing to be heartbroken, willing to lay down our life like Jesus did. So we wade into the mess, we take the risk, we fight for this kingdom of right relationships because in doing so, it's really the only way for us to experience the kind of community that we long for. Henry Nouwen is a famous Catholic priest and writer, and he's got an incredible story. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Henry Nouwen, but he was an academic, and a very successful one, sort of rose through the ranks of the Theological Academy, was a professor at Harvard University, and right at the very pinnacle of all of that success, he quit, and he chose instead to move to a community in Toronto called Daybreak and live amongst the mentally handicapped. And so his story is just this really interesting, very Jesus-like story of forsaking what we would traditionally define as success in order to be devoted to community and to fight for right relationships. 
And he tells this great story, this wonderful story about being invited to speak at a leadership conference in Washington, D.C. And this is how this story goes. He says, I did not go to D.C. alone. As I was preparing my presentation, I became deeply aware of the fact that Jesus did not send out his disciples to preach the word by themselves. He sent them out two by two. So I began to wonder why no one was planning to go with me. If my present life is truly among handicapped people, why not ask them to join me on the journey and to share the ministry with me? The Daybreak community decided to send Bill Van Buren with me. Since my arrival at Daybreak, Bill and I had become good friends. Of all the handicapped people in the house, he was the most able to express himself with words and gestures. From the beginning of our friendship, he had shown a real interest in my work as a priest and had offered to help me during services. Then Nowen goes on to explain the circumstances that led to Bill being baptized. And then he writes, Often I had told Bill that those who are baptized have a new vocation, the vocation to proclaim to others the good news of Jesus. Bill had listened to me carefully, and when I invited him to go with me to Washington, D.C. to speak to priests and ministers, he accepted it as an invitation to join me in my ministry. We are doing this together, he said at different times in the days before we left. Yes, I kept saying, we are doing this together. You and I are going to Washington to preach the gospel. Bill did not for a moment doubt the truth of this. While I was quite nervous about what to say and how to say it, Bill showed great confidence in his task. And while I was still thinking about Bill's trip with me primarily as something that would be nice for him, Bill was, from the beginning, convinced he was going to help me. As we stepped on board the plane, Bill reminded me again, we are doing this together, aren't we? Yes, Bill, I said, we sure are. When Bill and I arrived at the Washington airport, we were taken to the Clarendon Hotel. Bill and I were quite impressed by the glittering atmosphere of the hotel. We were both given spacious rooms with double beds, bathrooms with mini towels, cable TV. Bill loved it. Being a veteran TV watcher, he settled comfortably on his queen-size bed and checked out all the channels with his remote control. But the time for us to bring our good news together came quickly. After a delicious buffet dinner in one of the fancy ballrooms, I was introduced to the audience. At that moment, I still didn't know what doing it together with Bill would mean. I opened by saying I had not come alone, but was very happy that Bill had come with me. Then I took my notes and I began my address. At that moment, I saw that Bill had left his seat, walked up to the podium, and planted himself directly behind me. It was clear he had a much more concrete idea of the meaning of doing it together than I. <laughs> Each time I finished the page, he took it and put it upside down on a small table close by. I felt very much at ease with this and started to feel Bill's presence as a support. But Bill had a lot more in mind. When I began to speak about a certain point, Bill would interrupt me and say loudly for everyone to hear, I have heard that before. <laughs> he had indeed. And he just wanted the other ministers who were listening to know that he knew me quite well and was familiar with my ideas. Bill's intervention created a new atmosphere in the ballroom, lighter, easier, more playful. Somehow Bill had taken away the seriousness of the occasion and had brought to it some homespun normality. As I continued my presentation, I felt more and more that we were indeed doing this together, and it felt good. When I came to another point and was reading the words, the question most asked by the handicapped people with whom I live was, are you home tonight? 
Bill interrupted me again and said, that's right, that's what John Smeltzer always asks. Again, there was something disarming about his remark. Bill knew John very well after living with him in the same house for many years. He simply wanted people to know about his friend. It was as if he drew the audience towards us, inviting them into the intimacy of our common life. After I had finished reading my text and people had shown their appreciation, Bill said to me, Henry, can I say something now? My first reaction was, oh no, how am I going to handle this? He might start rambling and say something weird. But then I caught myself in my presumption and I said to the audience, will you please sit down? Bill would like to say a few words to you. Bill took the microphone and said, with all the difficulties he has in speaking, last time when Henry went to Boston, he took John Smeltzer with him. This time, he wanted me to come with him to Washington, and I am very glad to be here with you. Thank you very much. That was it. Everyone stood up and gave him a warm applause. As we walked away from the podium, Bill said to me, Henry, did you like my speech? <laughs> very much, I answered. Everyone was really happy with what you said. Bill was delighted. As people gathered for drinks, he felt freer than ever. He went from person to person, introducing himself, asked how they liked the evening, told them stories about his life at daybreak. I didn't see him for an hour. He was too busy getting to know everyone. The next morning at breakfast before we left, Bill walked from table to table with his cup of coffee in his hands and said goodbye to all those he knew from the evening before. It was clear to me he had made many friends and felt very much at home in these, for him, very unusual surroundings. As we flew back to Toronto, Bill looked up from the word puzzle book that he takes with him wherever he goes and said, Henry, did you like our trip? Oh, yes, I answered. It was a wonderful trip, and I am so glad you came with me. Bill looked at me attentively and then said, and we did it together, didn't we? It is better to do it together. And again, we'll talk more next week about some practical things and some things from this picture from the first church that we can begin to do. But this morning, I want us to just think about and to know two things. First, community is not the answer to everything. And Christian community certainly is not utopia. It will bruise you and you will be disappointed. And I don't say that to be cynical, but just to be honest. Second, there is no experience of the abundant life that Jesus offers without being with people. We can move from disappointed to devotion. And so fighting for this kingdom of right relationships is worth it. It's worth it. It is better to do it together. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this picture of the first church that you give us in the book of Acts. And we confess and repent for ways in which we've even turned that picture into a bit of an idol. And anyone who reads the rest of the book of Acts knows that that church got into fights and split and had disagreements that they had to work through and work out. And so may we be honest in our assessment of what it means. May we have realistic expectations about what it means to be a community. But may we also be a group of people who fights for the kingdom of right relationships, who does the hard work of forgiveness and reconciliation so that we can continue the good work of being together, loving each other and loving the community around us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.